0: Three dimensional transforming
1: musical linguistic objects.
2: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And right now, I'm going to play a recording of a live salon that we held one week ago today. As you'll hear, our guests that evening were three attorneys who have been actively working in the field of cannabis and psychedelic law. So without any further ado, here is Charles, who will introduce our panelists.
3: Well, uh, first, I want to thank everybody for joining us here tonight on the uh, psychedelic law for the people we have an excellent panel of experts uh, joining us and i'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and their uh, their their connection to psychedelic law and we're going to start with Gary Smith who literally wrote the book on it so Gary if you can give us a bit of an <laughs> overview of uh, of you and your work uh, we would really appreciate it
4: I'm just frightened that you introduced me as excellent. That's like way too much pressure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I did indeed literally write the book on on the topic. Um, so I am Gary Smith. I am, uh, oh God, about a 30-year veteran attorney. I am a founding member of a law firm here in Phoenix, Arizona called Guidant Law. Uh, my partner, Sam Sachs, is with us tonight as well. And my very, very dear and good friend, fellow attorney, Sonia Martinez, is with us too, Although she doesn't work at guidance because she doesn't like us enough to work with us. Uh, <laughs> Actually, that's, 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 let, just, let me let me hey, jump
2: hey, in for uh, a second. I, I I'm a lawyer, too, or I, I still have a license anyhow. So uh, let me just tell the audience that lawyers love to tease each other. They're, they're all smiling right now for those of you that can't see the video. So uh, uh, let me let me just say that lawyers have a sense of humor, too. We're not all just dull people. I'm sorry, Gary. Go ahead. No, you're
4: you're spot on. And, and you're right, by the way, the uh, the job is just so. So dark at times, we uh, our humor skews in a very unusual direction. Um, anyway, besides being a lawyer here in Phoenix, um, about, well, I guess a year and a half ago now, I wrote Psychedelic Elects, the country, and maybe possibly the world's first comprehensive legal treatise on the law of psychedelics. And uh, that came about because I went looking for that book, and I couldn't find it, so I wrote it. Uh, and then because of pandemic, I ended up starting my own separate podcast by the same name, Psychedelic Alex, that supports the book. And it's just every episode is an ongoing exploration of the question of psychedelics. And it's all aimed at trying to air and vet out the, the, the truth from all of the lies and mysticism and, and propaganda that we've all been living with for the past several decades. So that's pretty much what I've got going on these days.
3: Well, we're thrilled to have you with us. And uh, Sonia, thank you for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, about your work and what connects you to uh, the psychedelic world?
1: Hey there. Thanks for having me. Sonia Martinez, criminal defense attorney in Mesa, Arizona. I've run my own law firm for 15 years now. I'm currently the vice president of the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association. So I handle a lot of cases dealing with uh, quote-unquote drugs And other issues like that, not just as a criminal defense attorney, but also as a consultant, various groups and individuals come to me to ask me about different things, including, um, issues on psychedelics and what are some of the law enforcement repercussions, some of the things that they're looking at and facing should they, should, uh, should they desire, um, to, uh, make some decisions, if you will, in, in, in that regard. I am also a consumer of psychedelics so I'm happy to speak a little bit about that and those types of issues especially when they um are dealing with attorneys. Thanks for having me.
3: It sounds very brave to say that you're also a consumer of psychedelics on on this particular panel and that that raises really interesting questions about uh the the status of of uh your your Licensing, uh, as a, as a lawyer that maybe we can get into in the
2: main discussion. So, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Let Uh, let me just, let me just put an exclamation point on how brave that is. 17 years ago, when I started this podcast, I almost didn't call it the psychedelic salon because the word psychedelic was so toxic at the time. And so, you know, you are beyond brave, Sonia. <laughs> I, I, you're one of my heroes for being able to stand up there. And you're right up there with Myron Stolaroff, who who, who was honest about it his, his whole life. So uh, bravo to you. I'm sorry, Charles. I didn't mean to interrupt your flow here. I,
3: no, I appreciate it uh, very much. And uh, Sam, uh, you're, you're a partner with Gary. Can you uh, sure. talk a little bit about your work as well?
5: Yeah, my connection to psychedelics is through Gary Smith, um, who wrote the book on it. I'm his partner in crime and law. Um, I do mostly commercial litigation and personal injury um, insurance issues. So Gary, I think, thought of me for this because of my insurance uh, expertise and knowledge in terms of some of these questions have to do with risk and how that works. And so that's my um,
3: my connection. Thank you for that. And And I guess, you know, getting... Getting into the heart of it, and I want to come back to this at the very end, but let's assume that somebody, a year from now, two years from now, has just landed in some hot water related to psychedelics, and they need to figure out what to do because they're in trouble. What's your first advice for that situation? That person in that situation. Who do
4: you want to grab that?
1: This, this is a, this is Sonia. She's the criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> criminal
4: defense,
1: yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of a criminal defense question. So first and foremost, there is a four-letter phrase I use, S-T-F-U. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. And that's as respects law enforcement, but also as respects your quote-unquote friends, your colleagues, if you will, because it could very well have been your friends or your colleagues that have Kind of, um, put you, um, in a position where you were more likely to be looked at and, and therefore arrested. So first and foremost, please, as, as savvy as some of you are, as educated and smart as some of you are, law enforcement officials are a lot smarter than you when it comes to interviewing techniques. I will tell you that hands down. Some of you may be fantastic at, you know, being smart in so many ways, but please, STFU, and then call a criminal defense attorney because those conversations are actually privileged yeah. and confidential.
4: Can, can I backstop you on that, Sonia? I, I, yeah, I'm not kidding. Yesterday I had family in town and one of the family members is a police officer and we were chatting about exactly this. And I assure you, police train in interrogation techniques. They train in not merely how to interrogate you, but also how to phrase questions, how to get you to agree with them. They will put words in your mouth and get you to agree with them. So what Sonia says, shut the fuck up. Yeah, shut the fuck up.
5: And then you come to me when you didn't shut the F up or you go to Sonia if you didn't. And then we have to fix it is is the problem.
4: Yeah, yeah. And, And And by the way, shut the fuck up doesn't mean just stop talking. It means... No Twitter postings, no Facebook postings, no social media, nothing, because just because it didn't come out of your mouth doesn't mean it won't be attributed to you.
5: And I will say one thing in the civil arena where you don't have, you're not necessarily facing a criminal penalty. One thing that's important to do besides what Sonia said is also don't don't lie. Do not cover up things. Do not delete things. That is the cover up is worse than the crime. A lot of times, um, God forbid, if you're in a situation where, you know, if you're in a car and you hit somebody, do not leave the scene. Do not. That makes it much, much worse. They will find you. You are much better off dealing with the situation, being honest and accepting it than uh, trying to run and delete and, and destroy evidence. Yeah.
4: Yeah and And let let this one blow everybody's minds if you didn't know this already, Sonia, this is a question for you, which I already know the answer to. Can police
1: lie to you? <laughs> oh, stop it! Of course they can't.. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely police lie all the time in order to get people to say things and they do and like sam said actually destroying evidence is a whole new and separate charge i've had people call me from you know the restroom of a casino saying hey cops forgot to search me but they're searching my car but they forgot to search me and what should i do with all this all these fentanyl pills in my pocket should i flush I mean,
3: me? <laughs> Well, what is what is the answer? I don't think that we can assume that the the listener going to know that. So, what is the answer, um, Sonia?
1: As, as as an attorney, I could never, ever, 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 ever advise clients to break the law. So, let me let me give that as an answer.
4: Yeah, yeah. At that point, the cell phone call turns to who
1: this? Who this?
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> wrong, wrong so number. that. So that that leads
3: into the the, the next question, because there are certain limits as to what a lawyer is allowed to advise, and everything that we're talking here is both sensitive and not necessarily legal advice, but what are the boundaries that an individual should be aware of when they're engaging with a lawyer to help them in these areas?
4: Well, I wouldn't use the word boundaries when engaging with a lawyer. That's actually one of the weird few places where you really shouldn't have boundaries. In point of fact, we desperately, as your lawyer, need you to be completely forthright and honest with us and give us all the details. We're only as effective as the tools you give us and information generally is the scope of our tools. So the more you hold back from us and the more you, uh, God forbid, lie, which shockingly happens all the time with clients, uh, the more you undermine our work and, and thus undermine yourselves. Yeah, Gary and I talk about it a lot. The, the one thing
5: that the attorney-client privilege for is probably one of the strongest privileges there are. In fact, a lot of times that's the shield that Sonia needs is the attorney-client privilege, and, and it's designed to do exactly that. It allows you to be completely forthright and honest with your attorney. If you have a good attorney. Even if we can't advise you like that situation in the toilet, Uh, we cannot tell you that you can flush these pills and they probably will never trace that back to you. That is true. Um, We cannot advise you to break the law or do something unethical. But we can tell you what the law is. We can tell you what we've seen in other cases. And it's up to you to make a decision. Obviously, we counsel people to follow the law and to be honest. But not every situation are people honest. Not every situation is there, un- you know, sometimes there's unlawful activity. And that's just a reality. I mean, Sonia does this probably all day, even more than we do.
4: Yeah. By, by the way, since we're, we're already diving into the uh, deep lawyerly information here, I should probably say, if we hadn't said it already and we didn't, um, although we're lawyers, this is all for general information purposes only. Uh, nobody here should be thinking we're giving anybody their specific advice that they're looking for here. This is just general conversation. We are happy to talk to you about your particular circumstance, but please contact us offline. Let's make a proper appointment and do a private confidential conversation so that you're covered by this attorney-client privilege that Sam just alluded to. But for today, for the salon, this is general purpose only. Nobody leave thinking that we gave you advice. Thanks for that, Gary. And and, and
3: that pulls us back into the broad overview of Can you outline for us what is the current status with regard to psychedelics in the law? There are some state and local jurisdictions that are decriminalizing some psychedelics. Many of us here are supporters of MAPS. They've been doing a lot of work to reschedule other psychedelics, while the federal posture seems to remain full prohibition. So it sounds like a pretty murky landscape out there. Can you define for us what the current standing is with regards to the law and psychedelics for the layperson?
4: Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. And, and I bet Sonia and Sam will have some uh, comments as well. Um, first, the easy way to approach this is, yeah, psychedelics, still illegal, <laughs> same as they were yesterday, probably still going to be illegal tomorrow too. Um, so everything you always thought you couldn't do, yeah, you still can't. But that being said, uh, there are some jurisdictions around the country at the state and city level that are starting to amend and modify and relax their own local laws. But that's only good within those jurisdictions. And even then, it could be really, really minute, like a city like Denver, for example, uh, which would mean that in theory, still uh, state, county and federal police agencies could all still very much get involved and pursue whatever it is they're going to pursue against you. So it's at best uh like a calico cat right now. Um, and it depends on the substance. Like, for example, cannabis. Um, cannabis is technically a mild psychoactive, so we could lump it into the psychedelic uh, pile if you wanted to. And if you look around the country, I think we're down to, what, three states left that haven't modified their cannabis laws in some form or fashion, uh, but the other states have. So, pretty much across the country, cannabis in some iteration is acceptable, but yet still remains federally illegal. Um, there is a spending rider that's attached to the federal spending bills that still prevents the federal government from pursuing prosecutions of individuals who are within states with well-regulated cannabis programs. But make no mistake, if you're falling outside that well-regulated program, you're 100% still subject to federal law enforcement. Sonia, anything you want to expand on that?
1: Sure. You know, so one of the things as part of my intro, I said, is I'm a consumer of psychedelics. And specifically, what I was referring to was my buddy, Mr. Peyote. So, Mr. Peyote and I have been friends for quite a while. And in Arizona, the consumption of peyote is actually lawful if. You meet the requirements under the law, and the law requires that your use of peyote would need to be for bona fide religious purposes, um, an inter- integral part of the religious um, of your religious uh, beliefs, and it needs to be done. And here's a very important thing that's part of the law: your use of peyote needs to be um, consumed in a manner not dangerous to public health, safety, or morals. If your use and consumption of peyote does not fit within those requirements, it is a class six felony punishable by at least a year in prison. So when I have consumed and had a a good time with Mr. Peyote, I have done so through the Church of Wilcox, the Peyote Church of Wilcox, where I have to sign an affidavit, notarize an affidavit, attesting to my bona fide religious use. Um, I am personally a member of the Pascua Yaqui tribe, but I'm not going to pret- pretend that it is a traditional Pascua Yaqui ceremonial, um, thing that I do. I do it for my own personal religious beliefs in accordance with Arizona law on peyote. So, folks, I think one of the things that we'll be talking about as part of the bigger picture today is also the politics of it all, what I call political science and what I refer to as that last part of the use of peyote being lawful in Arizona. That is the consumption being um, not dangerous to public health, safety, or morals. So thanks.
5: And what I'll say is there's a very complicated, complex landscape that Gary outlined, but and I think we'll get into this too. There's also a sort of trailing what society how society views it, how police officers view it so that, you know, it's the equivalent of a busted taillight. Let's say it becomes legal. It's a busted taillight that lets them target you in some ways or not target you, but just they still have the world view in a certain way. Um, despite the fact that technically maybe it's not legal or maybe it's a lower level offense than it used to be. That doesn't mean people might think that, you know, users of it might think, Oh, this is, this is fine. That's not necessarily what it means in the practical reality of it.
3: And that raises a really good uh, point that is a a bit vague for, for some people, which is what's the difference between decriminalization and legalization? What activities are less risky than others if you're in a decriminalized environment?
4: Depends on the environment. And it depends on what law they pass. Like, for example, in the last general election, District of Columbia had an um, initiative on its ballot that passed that um, deprioritized law enforcement, which is a form of uh, re-regulation or decriminalization. But it doesn't mean it's off the books. It just means that police are are looking at other crimes as more important, and thus they will deprioritize pursuit of psychedelic crimes but it's still technically on the books. Um, Same with the example I gave you uh, a moment ago with the uh, federal spending riders that have this attachment on them that says, Hey, federal dollars are not to be spent on federal cannabis law enforcement in states with well-regulated cannabis programs. Still very much on the books, but still also at the same time, not enforced. So uh, unless you have a a true rescheduling or God forbid de-scheduling of these substances, they're always going to be in some channel of regulation and also potentially, if not always, uh, in some channel of criminality.
3: So let, let, let's let push on that a little bit. So I live in, in San Francisco and I'm adjacent to Oakland, California, where uh, there, there's decriminalization of psychedelics. And I've seen the open sale of psychedelics at certain events that are open into the to the general public and people are unconcerned about that should they be
4: oh i think so i think well it, it's yes and no i mean it depends, Gary, come on. It depends <laughs> on your risk tolerance i mean really because again you've got multiple jurisdictions all layered on top of each other that are are physically or virtually present even though you may not be aware of it so you know at your oakland level are your oakland police going to come in and bust you no because you have an oakland uh, ordinance that says no
5: but Plus, didn't the police sell it to you in the first place no,
4: in they, they, they resold it after lifting it off of somebody else in the parking lot because uh, you know that's how you do it. uh But, you know, you're at that same festival. Yeah. You know, Oakland police would theoretically be the predominant police force you're worried about. But look, you could still have state police there or federal agents. You just don't know. Um, You know, DEA does have a bit of a reputation for infiltrating organizations. We see this with religious groups in particular. Uh, In point of fact, we had uh, DEA infiltration here in Arizona of the uh, YI assembly down in, in Tucson. So it really happens all the time. So, you know, I know everybody's looking at me to say, Oh, it's okay. But uh, I can't say that. <laughs> the, to- bottom line, the bottom line here is getting to is if it's unlawful, it's
0: unlawful.
5: And yeah. it's your choice. I mean, you do things unlawfully every day. When you drive, you may make a left turn on, a, you know, on a yellow when you're not really supposed to. Is it that level? It's probably not that level. It's probably something greater And like Gary's saying, there may be other people around as well. But again, it's it's the it's the milieu that you're in where, you know, you have to look at it and say, is this openingly happening everywhere? Do I want to participate in it or not? I mean, it's still unlawful.
4: Yeah, I I had a friend who um, let's just say he had a very colorful life that involves some gang activity and, and other things. And he had this great phrase. It's, he, he said, when you're up to something, make sure you're doing nothing, if that makes sense.
3: Sonia, I saw you wanted to get in there.
1: Um, so one of the things that I always think of, and, 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 and this is true with the cannabis industry as well, is I always encourage the safe and responsible use of substances. I don't think there's, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with substances so long as there's the safe and responsible use of it. And that, that, that means a whole lot, right? So when you're, when you ask, for example, should we be concerned about the open sale of psychedelics, i.e., for example, mushrooms at an event? When you ask, should we be concerned? Are you talking about immediate concern, long-term concern? What kind of concern from? From people act potentially acting out, having a bad reaction to people driving and having a bad reaction. Um, you know, in the middle of driving, all of a sudden their acid kicks in and the road looks like it's, you know, Pac Man. They're in the Pac Man game all of a sudden, for example. Um, are you talking about those concerns? Are you talking about the, the, for, for example, I, I've known individuals who have successfully treated themselves with, um, small dosing of mushrooms, for example i 've also known people who have have mental significant mental health issues, for example, diagnosed bipolar, who do not use their medication, decide to then, on their own without consulting without any real help, then utilize psychedelics like mushrooms for treatment, and then things go sideways i I practice uh, family and dependency law as well, where uh, you know the state takes children away, and I cannot begin to tell you the hundreds of cases I've dealt with, where where individuals have um, been been institutionalized for weeks at a time because of the unsafe and irresponsible use. So my focus is always on the unsafe and irresponsible use. Most people that I know are very safe with their use of. Uh, psychedelics and other mind-altering substances, but there are definitely people who are not, and, and that's what we should be concerned about.
3: Can you unpack that a little bit more, Sonia? So what would qualify, and in your view, as, as safe and responsible use? What are some best practices people should be onboarding here?
1: So best practices, That and those are all great questions. I think a lot of us could chime in on this, but in terms of, you know, best practices, it uh, depends on who you are and what's going on. For example, I speak to a lot of parents because a lot of the work that I do is in def- uh, is is working with a lot of parents. So I'm always telling parents to be mindful, to be responsible in terms of if you're a parent and social media, I know we'll talk about it, but if you're a parent, it's probably not smart of you to post a lot on social media about uh, uh, consumption of of drugs, legal or otherwise, just because those are Things that are used against parents a lot all the time. Um, you have to look at why you are consuming th- this substance again. For example, a friend of mine who, um, with di- diagnosed bipolar with many prior uh, long-term episodes of manic depression decides, Oh, I just don't want to take meds and, um, and then starts to use mushrooms and then ends up for months institutionalized. <clears throat> and so you want to, uh, again, not necessarily, I mean, it, it, there's so much to, to look at. So look at why you're consuming. What is your intent and purpose? Um, again, if you're a parent, there's all sorts of things like not exposing your children, making sure that you keep your products away, locked up, et cetera, but also having age appropriate conversations with your children about what it is that y- you are doing. Um, never consume while driving, never, can, you know, be mind, be mindful of, of when you do consume and how much, how long after your consumption of whatever drugs you're taking, you do, um, start to drive and be wary of what are, what are the possibilities you're going to be pulled over? How far do you have to drive? All that sort of stuff. So those are just a few, uh, best practices, if you will. I'm big on not the driving thing. I'm big on the keeping it away from your kids thing, the mindful conversations, but also your, your intent um again i've seen some folks with with mental health um in particular not be safe and responsible and that's concerning for them and if they have children concerning for their children who don't have a parent for sometimes months at a time safe and responsible is the way to go is so i get you know what a good way to answer your question is if it doesn't feel right it's probably not right thanks I
5: think the not using a motor vehicle of any sort, whether it be a a car, a bike, <laughs> those motorized suitors, you get into. Not only do you get yourself into trouble. I mean, you should not be doing this. You shouldn't even be a passenger. You shouldn't be anywhere near anything with wheels. I think that should be sort of. I think that is the black letter law, by the way. I think even when they decriminalize this stuff, I like somebody laughing. Anything with wheels. No matter what, it's never going to be allowed until we get fully autonomous cyborgs driving our cars, which is still a little ways away. Never going to be allowed, nor should it really, because you can not only hurt yourself, you can hurt other people, which in my mind, you know, I do this stuff all day. That's the worst feeling is knowing that you hurt somebody else. I mean, it's one thing to hurt yourself. It's another thing to like hurt somebody else unintentionally. I mean, to me, it's like a nightmare. Um, and unfortunately I've lived it in my own family and I know what that's like and it, you know, seeing the results of that. So I think that's not getting anywhere close to any vehicle is, is where probably Gary, you might even know the stats on that. Isn't that where most of these other than selling and, you know, those kind of level crimes, is it related to a motor vehicle's got to be number one in terms of where
3: people get into legal trouble now?
4: Um, you know, truthfully, I, I don't know the motor vehicle psychedelic connection cause it just doesn't come up that much. Um, impaired driving through like DUI or cannabis stuff. Sure. That, that happens all the time. Uh, by the way, if I can also riff off of what Sam said, there's, a, there's this whole parade of ick. That can befall you if there's like vehicles involved. And here's just one example amongst many. So, you know, let's say, uh, you, you've taken something and it's impaired you and, and you're not in your car, but instead you have borrowed a friend's car or your mom's car, uh, and something bad happens. The liability cascade is going to spill over from you onto the person who entrusted you with the car, uh, and uh, whether or not you owe, know who that person is. The the poor plaintiff who you harmed will. Um, and and then, you know, you've got the problem that there was an illegal substance involved. So now, oh, my God, guess what? The insurance that you thought was going to cover you for the harm you just caused, yeah. Your carrier is going to come back and say, hey, we don't cover for illegal acts, so we're really sorry you had that car accident, and uh, good luck to you, buddy. Uh, hope it all works out because we're not covering you for any of it. And, and that's just a tiny, tiny taste of what can happen. Wow.
3: And, and, and this opens up into the question of where the priority for law enforcement is. What you seem to be talking about is do your psychedelics responsibly, make a special space for it, stay in that special space. When you go out into a car, when you go outside of that special space, then you're inviting a different kind of scrutiny. So the question here is, is it true that psychedelic users are a low priority target for law enforcement? Is it really mostly in these aggravating factors that we start to see cases or are there other factors that influence law enforcement making psychedelic use a priority?
4: Um, I think you're going to get different answers from all three of us. I'll I'll go first. I guarantee Sonia having the criminal perspective will have a a very different answer than me. But my my take is, you know, psychedelics are definitely on the menu for police agencies if they want to. But as far as prioritization, statistically speaking, psychedelics are still pretty small as compared to, you know, like your illegal fentanyls out there. So, you know, the spectrum of probability suggests it's a lower risk with psychedelics, but it's never no risk. There's always something out there. And, and also the, the police will prioritize based on the size you know, are they hunting the one-off local, like, you know, mushroom forager in the forest, or are they looking for, I don't know, the clandestine LSD labs inside of missile silos? Um They're probably looking for the clandestine labs, right? But it doesn't mean if they come up upon the mushroom forager, they wouldn't do something. They might. Sonia, baton is yours.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, So listen, at least in Arizona, I'm speaking to Arizona, I'm not sure if in other states, but this is probably to in other states. Consistently since 2003, the focus in Arizona has been on the four most commonly used drugs, marijuana, meth, cocaine, and heroin. So those are the main focus because those are the most consumed. Those are the most readily available. And quite frankly, if you think of the, te- the things that people do on, on those drugs, um, and I'm not even talking about marijuana. I've got to love me some marijuana, but the other drugs, they're, they go out in public. So just as the host talked about, once you go out of your safe space, if you will, and you do that when you're on Coke and meth, you know you're on coke and meth and her, you know you're out are out partying um um heron's a, a little bit different, but you know when it comes to psychedelics, I know that at least for example with my with respect to my use of peyote, it is done at the church property in wilcox on site you stay there there is you know you stay there for an entire weekend you are in a very safe space so the likelihood that something's going to happen there and that's that's just an example and that's an example of when people are using psychedelics they're generally um I mean it, and it's all over the place I guess you could say um a lot of people use psychedelics mushrooms mushrooms things like that and they like to be out in the forest and <laughs> um you know but um in a general sense it is not a low priority per se it's just that if there's a low consumption rate compared to the four main ones that that the cops are focused with um off the record i was speaking to a fellow county attorney of mine who works in the drug unit and interesting enough this is not reported necessarily but again off record there has been a, a, a just a, a slight increase and um psychedelic charges that are associated with some illegal sales of marijuana uh the the adult use marijuana in arizona so arizona recently became adult use about a year ago and of course with adult with that comes a lot of a lot of new black market right and um there has been just a very slight nothing crazy just a just a very slight couple of new cases with uh with an added element of psychedelics. So uh, there's a query, if you will, then that brings a query. Um, and I think Gary spoke about this in his book too, whether or not, um, you know, with certain, with the legalization, with the legalization of certain drugs, you then start seeing uh, more of the, the still illicit substances kind of coming in to the foreground. With the now legal substance makes sense
3: so are you are you proposing that because this one substance became more uh, permissible legally that it freed up resources to go after other substances? is that what I'm hearing, or am I misunderstanding you
1: so um, just a little bit misunderstanding and i'm not making any conclusions or proposals, but sure. there is a there is a there is a theory out there that with the with the legalization of marijuana, then follows the legalization of other drugs and/or more cons- more more consumers consuming. So now, what is it, Gary? Is it Washington that now has people people could literally do any drugs? I think. What is it? Uh, they could do yeah. almost any drugs now?
4: Well, it's uh, Oregon had a, a, a decrim initiative that covered several, not not everything, but um, several drugs are now uh, decriminalized for personal purposes, personal use, personal supply.
1: And, okay, uh, so yeah.
4: California is currently flirting with that as well.
1: Yeah, so that's just kind of what I was referring to, that that sort of theory dynamic of whether or not the the marijuana wave of legalization is also creating a ripple effect of the, the new legalization of these other drugs. Again, that sounds like they're safe, safe and responsible use on the books in those jurisdictions. So let's see how it goes there, huh? You know, I'm completely uneducated
3: compared to you
5: guys, Gary and Sonia on this. But my hunch is just because a police department strategically says, or or even a state or a country says this is a lower priority, depending on what you're doing, it might not matter to you personally. A, it's still illegal, right? Uh, Presumably, something may still be illegal. It doesn't matter that it's a lower priority. It's still an illegal act that you're doing. Are you going to get caught or not is another question. It, It goes to what Sonia and I were talking about. What do you decide to do if you decide to do this? Um, if you 're in your house it 's decriminalized you 're in your house you 're on your couch, and nobody's around you 're probably not going to get caught and it 's a lower priority, so presumably they haven 't spent a lot of money on people surveilling it right presuming you 're not selling it to people and, and creating this stuff and batching it up it 's not going to get it's now you 're not, not going to have the same chances of getting caught, but it 's still illegal versus it 's literally decriminalized but again. We have a decriminalized, very dangerous substance. It's called alcohol. And we know that if you get into, for example, a car and you drink an alcohol, now it becomes a criminal activity. So I don't know, Gary, I mean, you probably know the laws. I'm assuming you still can't drive on, on psychedelic substances, correct? at least not the
4: yeah. beyond paper dose, right? Yeah. I don't know of a single jurisdiction whose uh, impairment statute doesn't contemplate multiple forms of impairment like you know we call them DUI laws cuz alcohol's the number yeah. one thing but it's anything that impairs you like if you have a cast yeah, on your leg and you can't operate your vehicle cuz you've got a cast on your leg that can be driving under an impairment you could be charged that way Sonia, have you ever
1: seen anything at that extremity uh no not the not the cast on the leg thing but we do in arizona have the drug dui and most jurisdictions have what's known as the drug dui so yeah we got that here for sure And and that's what people are charged with. They are charged with an A1 impaired to the slightest degree from any intoxicating substance. And then what they call an A3, a drug DUI specifically. Yep.
5: And let's, I think a lot of people can understand the driving thing. Let's talk about you get into a fight, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a psychedelic substance and you misinterpret something, assault and battery is still, it could be a crime depending on the circumstances. Now you've committed a crime You're also tested, let's say, and now you've also done a drug. What what do you think is going to be the situation there? Do you think they're going to not mention the the drug use? I mean, they will. (laughs) Criminalized or not, you're now involved in a separate crime.
4: Oh, yeah. And and God forbid you're busted while also in possession of a firearm, even though it had nothing to do with your drug use. You just incidentally have a firearm. Uh, Boy, you've just spooled yourself up for another felony charge. Just stay
1: home. So stay home. That's the thing. You know, do get your psychedelics, sit on the couch and stay home.
3: (laughs) Now, let's talk about a category of, of psychedelics and staying home, which is the the rise of social media. And there's so much happening on Instagram and Facebook around psychedelics right now where there, there, there's this interesting line between what we're doing here, which is protected by the First Amendment. It's the overall expressive and informational discussion of psychedelics. But then there's a lot of stuff where there might be some lines present. So I'd, I'd like to talk about what some of those lines are. Uh, I guess let's start with What is protected speech in this context? Can you talk about your psychedelic use? What is safe to say and do online? And then I've got some additional questions after we just kind of cover that that first baseline of what is absolutely safe to do in an online environment.
4: Sure. Um, Here again, you're going to get a lot of different information from all three of us. Um, First Amendment free speech. So First off, when we're talking about First Amendment, we're talking about a federal constitutional principle that limits and restricts what a government can do in regards to regulating speech. So as a general concept online, for the most part, you're free to say almost anything you want. There are some limits, of course. Um, You know, the the old World example is, uh, you know, you can't go and scream fire in a crowded theater and cause a panic. So there are restrictions even even on air quotes free speech. Um, the topic of talking about this, though, online or in social media is near and dear to my heart because I agree with you. There is equal parts gross over sharing online uh, and also equal parts really important and necessary sharing online. What do I mean by that? Uh, Here's what I mean. We need to have a public discussion about psychedelics. It's the only way to lever change is to get people talking about it. And I don't mean inside of these echo chambers where we all already get it. Uh, It's great that we amongst ourselves have these conversations, but we're all at some level fans or at least open minded enough. So we need to break these conversations out of our groups and go have them with people who aren't like minded. That's how you lever change. But the problem with the oversharers is that they overshare. They put far too much information online that could implicate them in literal criminal acts. Uh, and here again, I don't do criminal practice, nothing. And that's partially why Sonia's here to talk about those experiences. But I can tell you in the civil arena, uh, again, Sam is a, is a personal injury lawyer. I, I'm a civil and administrative litigation attorney. And both Sam and I, even in the civil side of this, often cringe at the stuff that people put online. Uh, and, and I know in, in preparing for uh today's episode, uh, I had mentioned to uh, you and Lorenzo both a true story about just one example for one of my cases where uh, I had a client who had hired a, a contractor to do some build out on a commercial space for the client. And my client gave the contractor an $80,000 cash deposit. And the client uh never saw the contractor again. He just took the cash, ran, gone. Fine. I get hired. I do what I always do. And I start by looking at social media to see if I can find dirt on my opponent. And this idiot posted within a week after getting the money from my client, a picture of himself with his brand new cash paid for Harley Davidson motorcycle. And if you don't think we didn't take a copy of that and turn it over to the prosecutor's office, oh boy. Yeah, we did. Uh, and we find stuff like that all the time. Sam, I know this is a major issue in your universe. You want to talk about that a little bit?
5: Yeah, I I think at any time there's a civil issue, and we alluded to some of the driving things, I mean,
4: the adjusters, the, the
5: insurance adjusters, look at your social media presence. They're looking, what do you look like? I mean, it's that superficial, that bias, because they know that certain people might not, again, statistically in their view, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but they make assumptions about people. If you're trying to get a life insurance policy and you're, there's pictures of you, you know, free base jumping or whatever, you know, that, that is going to be deemed that you lied and didn't share that with them because they asked you on a life insurance application, do you skydive? Do you do a dangerous activities? No, 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 no. And meanwhile, there's tons of pictures of you. This is what you do in your spare time. So not only will adjusters look at it, police enforcement they're not stupid they will look at they will look up somebody and they will find your connections and they will see it i mean we're all kind of older on this panel i guess i'm the youngest one here and i kind of miss the facebook thing so whenever i say this to to clients like you don't have to post about this accident for example you don't have to post and you shouldn't post about the lawsuit the reality is guys like this is the new generation is oversharing. And that's just how it is. I mean, there's literally, there's no way to tell them not to. You don't exist if you don't do it. So should you do it? No, it's great. You know, I don't, I don't get even the the why you want to do it, right? I mean, I think, Gary, we've talked about this. Like, yeah. why do you even have to share this?
4: Yeah, I, I'm of the generation where um, it's none of your business. You want to know something about me? Uh, Too bad. <laughs> I,
0: I don't want you to know. Yeah,
4: exactly. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. so
5: like, long did you know? I
4: would tell you. I was raised that um you're not supposed to get into cars with strangers. This generation, you literally pay to do it. It's easy.
0: Yeah. yeah.
4: But I so I think there's a reality of it. Should you ever do it? I mean,
5: I don't th- if you're literally everything is literally decriminalized and you feel the need to share whatever I would, I would assess why am I doing it? What is the benefit I'm getting from doing this? It really, well, I mean,
3: a tangible benefit and, yeah. and let's use some real, real world stuff that's happening on Instagram right now is that you have learned how to make mushrooms. And so you're going to show your yield. You're going to post photos of your mushroom yield. And maybe this is decrim in your jurisdiction. Maybe it's not. Maybe a tangible benefit is you get the credit from your peers of, hey, look at those mushrooms you've grown. Or maybe the tangible benefit is somebody offline goes, hey, let me buy some of those from you. So to the extent that we've established that there's some necessary sharing of information, I think we can all kind of agree that there's some benefit in sharing information about how to grow mushrooms for instance instance but is there the a same benefit of showing your yields for instance where where should we where is yeah. the line of oversharing
1: yeah so first off I'll speak to this first off um in every single jurisdiction I am sure definitely in Arizona there are law, law enforcement teams that are dedicated to reviewing social media I can begin to tell you the number of Cases I've had that started off with the law that particular law enforcement team just scanning social media. That's essentially all they do, and they look for different things, including yields, if you will. So first, keep all your social media to private. Don't have it public. The So many people have it public. I mean, keeping it private. Don't don't get me wrong. Doesn't necessarily. Um um. It definitely makes it safer in the sense that the 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 first look of at things. Um, Unless you're an undercover police officer who has added you as a friend and they're now your friend and they can see your stuff privately, if you will, and there's plenty of those as well. But again, just scanning the regular pu- what's available publicly. <clears throat> So get, do private. Second, definitely don't, just don't, don't share your yield. If you're in a, if you're in a place that's decrimmed a little different, but I'm speaking in Arizona, Arizona, where everything, everything is basically illegal. However, um, so definitely don't, don't share your yield. That's something I highly recommend against. Um, show your yield to friends when they go over to your house, you know what I mean? Not, not to the three, 400 social media friends. Um, I and however
5: cover agents right
1: yeah exactly exactly um i however did share for example i do love mr peyote and when i was down in wilcox i shared pictures of their with permission they allow you to take pictures of their um different um peyote plants so I took a couple of photos um, and then on social media, I said something along the lines of, did you know in Arizona um, peyote, the use of peyote is actually lawful if blah, 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 you know? And then I didn't necessarily say I did it, but just kind of showing my uh, social media friends, Hey, um, look at this is what peyote looks like. And, and did you actually know this, this little fact? So that's something that, that I shared. So it's a little different, if you will. It wasn't my yield and I'm, I'm giving an educational fact, if you will. So, but definitely don't ever share yields. Um, you know, if you want to, for example, uh, if you're in a decrim place, show a picture of a, of, of a, you know, of your LSD or something like that. And it's a, one of the few decrim places that, I mean, that's, one thing, but never never a large amount, none of that sort of thing. That's just calling and asking for trouble. Believe me, many of my cases say the same. So just don't. Yeah. So well, let's put it
0: this
5: way. If there's a tangible benefit, there's a tangible risk.
4: Yeah, Or, or another way to look at it too is whatever you're posting, if you one day had to be sitting in the witness stand at your trial and having to explain your post, would you be comfortable doing that or uncomfortable doing that? Let that be your guide if you have no other metric upon which to make your decision. Um, another thought, too, is also this. There's a big difference between telling somebody how to manufacture a nuclear weapon and then actually manufacturing the nuclear weapon. You can publish the guide on how to do it. That's protective speech all day long. Uh, but when you start to assemble that bomb, yeah, you're probably tripping it into some illegal conduct. So same thing with like the mushroom cultivation instruction videos, which by the way, Charles, you're spot on. Those things have, if you'll pardon the pun, mushroomed across YouTube over the last several months. And there are some really good quality productions out there now with people offering, um, high production value videos that are very scientific. Um, I watch those all the time. I watch all these videos because I'm just fascinated by the topic. And frankly, I have to know it to do this job. Um, but they're there. And yeah, sometimes I cringe a little bit because some of these people are legitimately growing hallucinogenic mushrooms and showing it to you from start to finish. And I'm thinking, you know, you could have done the exact same video series with creminis and not putting yourself at any risk. Um, but I applaud that they were willing to go there. I just don't think it's something I would have ever recommended they do.
3: So let let let's unpack that from the three of you of if you're talking to the over-sharers who we all agree we think more information is better than less yeah. what are some of the red flags you might uh recommend that they pay attention to what are some of the guidelines of of ways that could be more safe than less safe in in sharing information
4: uh top of the list is going to be don't video your tape or don't videotape yourself engage in a criminal act and then put it on the internet. <laughs> use facsimiles if you have to. Um, don't use your identity if you can. Those would be the top top pieces of advice. Sam, Sonia?
5: And my my response is, um, Do you would you do this in front of a police officer? <laughs> if the answer is no, that's essentially what you very well might be doing, and you might be doing it for generations of police officers. So if you're doing something illegal, why would you tape yourself or or record yourself doing it? Unless, like you said, Charles, it's it's for a tangible benefit. So is there a reason because you want to sell these items, right? So I think that the protections goes down. I don't know. I'm not a First Amendment lawyer. It's it quite complicated. But I mean, the more it's a it's a commercial activity, the less it's protected speech. You know, it's it's kind of a seesaw. If it's... If it's like Sonia was talking about sharing the beauty of Wilcox and the peyote church, she's sharing that not to sell peyote, but to help people understand, you know, what's legal, what's not legal.
1: Don't share anything illegal, basically, period. Don't share anything illegal. Share it at home when you have your friends over at your home. No need to share it on social media because, yeah, you're basically sharing it to law enforcement so serious easy bottom line rule don't share anything illegal
4: yeah like give you give you an example like in in um Various places online, you can find recipes for extractions uh, or different uh, techniques for taking uh, different substances. Like, uh, I don't know, let's say lemon tech, for example. You could post a recipe for lemon tech. It's, well, the recipe's lemons. That's about it. Uh, you know, that's fine. You're not going to get in trouble for posting uh, lemons, you know. But when, when you start to uh, post for the sale of the mushroom to go with it, yeah, you've definitely tripped into a zone you shouldn't be engaged in.
0: I think what
5: people like to hear is, well, what's a safer way to do it? What's the best way to do it? Because I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, we're not going to advise you to do not break the law. That's not what we're um, about here. But I mean, I think, you know, you have to go back to like the Silk Road. You guys all know the story guess where all the FBI agents were? <laughs> you know, they're using Tor. I mean, this is just a way to, like, target yourself. Is like, is it better? Is it safer to send an encrypted message out to Tor users and all, all sorts of things? I don't know. It might actually be a more a, a, a worse thing to do in terms of risks because now you're really a target. It's like, this person really is trying to hide this.
3: So I want to make some space for uh, for <clears throat> for some of our... Or community to ask questions. But before we go into that, because we've covered it a little bit tonight, what does the law really say about topics of religious liberty and psychedelic use? Or this other concept that you'll hear people talk about a lot is cognitive liberty and Mm. psychedelic use. Are these actual legal concepts with regard to psychedelics? And if they are, how are how are they used? How narrow is this? Can anybody simply say, it's my religious right to use mushrooms. Can anybody really say I have cognitive freedom? What does what does the law really say about this?
4: Um, sure, I'll I'll take that first. And yeah, you you can really say that um, from the middle of your jail cell. You can really say that from there. Um, you can say that for the years and years you're spending there. Uh, okay, kid, kidding aside, yeah, there there is absolutely, unquestionably, in the United States a legal channel for psychedelic religion. It's been with us for decades, if not centuries. Um, First Amendment protection <clears throat> exists. The problem is it's not well developed in, in in the law. So there are still a lot of dark zones and gray areas and what is or isn't permissible. So uh, a couple of easy, low hanging bright lines here, if I can mix metaphors and torture them like I just did. Uh, it's a fruity metaphor. Um, if you're going to be engaging with a psychedelic religion, your safest space possible is to go into a religious organization that's already had its court battles. So, for example, the ayahuasca churches like Santo Daime, they've already been to the U.S. Supreme Court and they've been deemed okay. So as long as you're in one of these groups and they're still following the same tenets that got them through the first battles, um, you're safer than, say, Uh, You know, Joe's Mushroom Church that just opened up in the strip mall. Um, Those people haven't had their little day in court yet or or don't possibly have the war chest to fend off their day in court, which would be ideal. Um, So there's still risk there. But absolutely, yes, there there is a swell right now in the country of psychedelic religion, and I've got several practitioner friends around the country who do this kind of work like I do, and we're all collectively trying to figure out how we can get a good census of the numbers of people who are engaged and involved in these psychedelic religions, because if I can borrow uh, a line from Dune, I suspect it's a lot like the Fremen in the sense that I think their numbers are vast, and I think it's a a best-kept secret Um, so yeah, if, if uh, any of you have ambitions of being the Kwisatz Aderok, I'd like you to come out and, and, and let us get a census on how many psychedelic religious adherents are out there. Um, other things I can tell you, the law has not really caught up to the idea of spirituality alone as a religious basis. Um, you've got to remember these are conservative judges who are old and have been on, you know, courts for a long time or, or just living with the old. Beliefs, so they're they're looking. Unfortunately, although they shouldn't be, because the law does not require this, but they're looking for something that looks like the Judeo-Christian lineage. You know, they're looking for a you know proper church building and a deacon or priest at the front, and you know a lot of these psychic psychedelic religions don't look like that and don't act like that. So it's a harder sell in the courtroom, and and there's definitely no law uh, or case that I have yet found that speaks of the concept of a religion of one. And that's a very common concept in the psychedelic circles that, you know, when you're spiritual, it's not that you're looking to join a community necessarily, as much as you're looking to connect with whatever the, that is, uh, call it what you want. Um, so, yeah, there's not a lot of safe space, but there are some safe spaces to dwell within.
3: Thank you. Sonia, you've you've articulated your participation in uh, in, in in a uh, psychedelic religious experience. Can you speak a little bit to your point of view on on the question of what makes for a legitimate religious use with regard to psychedelics?
1: That is a great question, uh, much appreciated. So, legitimate use is. Essentially, you're doing it for your spiritual benefit and development. That's the best way I could put it. So for me, it is a, um, through my religious spiritual experience, if you will. So when I say religion, I'm not talking about Christianity or, um, uh, you know, Judaism or Islam, if you will. I'm talking about my own religious spirituality. So in that sense, that is what peyote, um, does for me and falls within the bona fide religious use. So plainly put spiritual benefit and development
3: within the context of the established organization
4: that has the exemptions.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And,
4: and there are several religious groups now that are looking to incorporate a psychedelic or an entheogen into their religious practices. Um, I have been consulted over the last year by a number of these groups, and they're all stripes. Uh, I, I've had uh, Christian groups come looking for this. I've had uh, devoutly Orthodox Jewish groups coming looking for this. And in fact, weirdly enough, and I haven't figured out why, Judaism seems to be where uh, the bulk of this is coming up right now, um, but not exclusively so. Very interesting. Uh, so let's open it up. There is, does
3: anybody have any questions that they want to introduce into this conversation? Go ahead and, raise, and use the raise hand or simply unmute. Okay, well, oh, go ahead, Andrew.
0: Gary, you're saying that people making tutorials on YouTube have finally figured out how to focus their camera lenses?
4: (laughs) That's news. Depends which one. But yeah, I've seen some uh, decent ones recently, like in the last month. Um, Email me uh, offline. I'll, I'll try to pluck some of the ones that I've seen that I liked and I'll share them with you and you can judge them as you wish.
5: Gary, is your advice for sharing, share better
4: quality? Yeah, well, that's always that's always <laughs> good advice. If you're going to share
5: it, at least make it high quality. If you're going to do something illegal and you want to share it with law enforcement, make sure it's super high-res. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> so,
4: okay. I, I appreciate the joke, but, but it, seriously, to Andrew's point, I mean, you know, like a few years ago, if you went onto YouTube looking for these how-to videos, it was some guy in a in right. a kitchen that looked like a, a meth lab in the middle of the woods. Uh shaky camera like food on the walls while he's trying to cook something on the stove. Just the worst. I mean, You know what, Gary?
5: That's a mastermind because there's no way they're tracking him down or taking him seriously. So that was a genius move.
4: It, it could be, could be. Um uh, but but there are definitely some people out there who are doing much better quality stuff. Um, you know, there's a, not, not a how to video series, um, but there was a great series out of, oh God, I want to say Holland, uh, called drugs lab that's on YouTube drugs lab. And it was a bunch of like 20 year olds who were the show hosts and every episode, one of the hosts would try a different drug. And I mean, they went through them all. There had to have been like 60 episodes. And it was really well produced. And, and what they would do is have the person sit down and take the drug. They'd film it. They'd have their uh, vital statistics on the wall behind them. So you're tracing how they're doing throughout it. And they'd have another host there monitoring and interacting. And it was really well produced and very educational. All right. Warren looks like uh, he's got a question.
3: Go ahead, Warren. Oh, uh, yeah. I was wondering what, um, don't the oh. prosecutor's offices or, uh... You know, the DA in the different jurisdictions really have uh, a lot of discretion as to uh,
4: who gets prosecuted and who doesn't and what for. Well, presumably after an arrest. Sure. (laughs) I wouldn't say they have unfettered discretion. They don't just grab people.
1: But Yeah, I mean, prosecutors have the discretion, and that's who, who creates the long-form complaint for the different charges. What they don't have discretion over, however, are some of the minimum guidelines. So in Arizona, at least in Arizona, um most psychedelics – um so in Arizona, let me go back, there are three categories of drugs. Number one, marijuana has its own category. Got to love it. Number two, narcotics, and number three, dangerous drugs – Psychedelics fall under dangerous drugs. Um, so, you know, we, we got that going for it. That's unfortunate. But yeah. what happens is what I'm saying is at first there is a law called Prop 200 where if you have a personal, if you're in possession of personal use, not sales, not transportation of, um, you know, with intent to sell none of that personal use, you get a chance to, you know, resolve your case by, Taking a substance abuse, uh take, doing an evaluation in course, and then your case goes away. But um, if you don't do that and then you pick up a second case for a psychedelic, um, depending on the amount, it's a minimum of like two and a half years. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So you have to be you have to be really careful when it comes to your psychedelic use, because if you choose to consume it again be careful because the you you could reap a lot of negative repercussions in the criminal justice system should should you be caught and definitely should you be caught with an amount that makes it appear as if you are sell, selling it so be careful folks
5: sonia yeah, isn't it still the case with like lsc because it's such a small amount that that's necessary right. like you can like be you know you have this much and you're like a trafficker is that still the case
1: yeah, LSD. Um, I could check, but I think it's something like six tabs. I'm pretty sure it's like five or six tabs. If I well, recall. If
3: you have it a different form, you know, you have it in a in a liquid or something.
1: Yeah, that as well. So essentially, think of it as five or six tabs worth. I think I think that's still the amount before your it's considered sales. Yeah, and that's a whole nother an, a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. So again, just be careful out there, folks. So five or six five tabs, possible. or
3: Five or six tabs are what some of us call Saturday night. Go go, go
4: ahead, Kenya.
5: Saturday night and Monday.
4: <laughs> I, a, I, I want to complain that Charles has never invited us over.
0: <laughs> come come to,
4: come come to San Francisco. Let let let's let Kenya in.
0: <laughs> oh no! I have, you mentioned
1: uh, Prop 200 in Arizona, and um, I I'm a substance abuse counselor, so I was doing some continu- continuing education. And they mentioned that in prop 200, when it was passed, it was origi- originally supposed to be any drug, not just marijuana. Yeah, exactly. And that's why they allow other drugs to, um, other, you know, other drugs for, for people with, uh, with charges for other drugs to be allowed to, to do that course. But I, I, wasn't there a part in it where like it said like a doctor can prescribe you any drug or something weird like that but then it was like taken back um I'm not sure what your question is but the bottom line is at least for the very first personal use of most drugs the state gives you a chance to kind of you know go meet with counselors like you do all that sort of stuff there's a first chance type of thing, but some people don't take that opportunity because they're not ready or whatever. They mm-hmm. don't do their thing, and then they're stuck with a dangerous drug charge. And then they get a second drug charge, and all of a sudden they're in prison for two years because, you know, they uh have uh, mm-hmm. you know five or six tabs of LSD and a and a grow room of mushrooms, if you will. So, oh, okay.
5: What I think is going to be interesting is when they, they come up with some more um, defined uses of like micro dosing, let's say of mushrooms or something. And it's for depression, right? And it's, and it's like super effective. I mean, people who are really depressed don't necessarily want to see somebody to get that prescription. Once they see that it's like FDA approved, let's say, I think there, isn't there going to be a lot more sort of recreational use of people just really just trying to get healthy,
4: if they see that it's proven. Oh, 100%, Sam. Yeah, I've been saying this for the last two years at least, that wonderful things are happening with the Food and Drug Administration. There are several psychedelics that are on path for rescheduling. They're going to be approved and they'll be available with doctor's prescription. Pharmacists will be able to compound or issue it. But I greatly suspect FDA is going to tie those at least for the next many, many years, to a clinic visit only, which will make them financially out of reach for most. And it's going to be a while before health insurance picks it up. So yeah, a hundred percent. As these things come online in the mainstream, I absolutely am convinced it's going to be like steroids for the for the black market because people will A, know about it more, B, be looking for it, and C We'll eventually figure out, hey, wait a minute, that same psilocybin that I'm going to this clinic down the street that I'm shelling out 500 bucks a session, I can literally grow that in a box under my bed for free? Yeah. Right. That secret's not going to be kept for very long. Right. Hey, Gary, there's... why do you give out your address for anybody
5: looking for us?
3: <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let, uh, let's let Mally in. Go ahead, Mally.
2: Yeah, I just wanted a little more information <clears throat> about the, the future of schedules. Because, uh, it, you know, if we look at the rules, that schedules are built around there, there are a lot of these drugs were scheduled incorrectly a long time ago. So I'm interested in your perspective of, you know, what do you see in the future for that? Because if they are rescheduled, it, it really changes the game in a significant way.
4: Um. Yeah. Well, it depends what is being rescheduled and how or really to what re, what schedule number are they being rescheduled? Um. I don't think that there's going to be much movement from the federal government other than through FDA normal channels. So when we're talking about these psychedelics that are coming up through that that wave right now, um, just take psychedelic out of the conversation. Just say drug. Um, this This could be Viagra we're talking about. You know, there are pharmaceutical companies that want to get their patents in place and get their FDA approval so that they can exploit these things financially. I don't think that system's apt to change anytime soon. How psychedelics fall on them, that's the lever right now, but it's going to be through that heavy, heavy science investment path. Uh, I don't see anything happening on the grassroots level that would be levered by the federal government doing anything. I think the grassroots has to take care of itself, and that's why you're seeing these initiatives pop up around the country uh, during the last election and the one before that and elections to come.
5: Gary, does that put pressure on the federal government? The fact that there's these initiatives and now like a
4: patchwork of different criminalization? is it? No, <laughs> no. I mean, look, look at what cannabis has been doing for the past decade. Has the federal government done anything yet? We can't even get a stupid banking law passed. So all these dispensaries out there are still having to deal in cash, literal cash, all because we just can't get banking approved. So yeah, for anybody who's thinking, oh, we're going to lever change at the federal level, mm -mm, that's your final destination. Start local, work your way up. Because if you start at the top, you're just wasting your time. So I want to do one or two more audience questions if we have any. Go ahead, Andrew.
0: I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this, but I, I think it'll come through. What would it take in order for people who let's say in the example of Arizona they they get arrested on a drug charge and they have to do a counseling program what would it take for mushroom growing to be the curriculum of a of a of, of that kind of rehab per, like how far would we have to go how, how many laws would we have to strip away like for that loop to close itself for mushrooms to be like an officially prescribed treatment, like, or or a grow program of of some kind of education, like, what would that actually take? And how far away from that?
4: Oh, I'm not sure I'm understand when you say a a mushroom growing program, you mean, like somebody going to prison for something and taking a program
0: in prison about mushroom growing? The question comes from When I, you know, when I imagine having a conversation with somebody who has a problematic relationship with a substance, like, well, if I really could, you know, give them any advice that my heart, you know, has to offer, you know, one of the first things would be, hey, maybe you should learn to grow these, uh, these interesting little plants over here, because, like, I think that if you're into altering your consciousness, this could be a path that allows you to channel that energy into a much more constructive, you know, uh, way than, you know, maybe you first learned when you got into altering your consciousness. Um, But like.
1: when is it going to be? You're asking, when is that, that type of thing going to be mainstream shit? I think, I think we're far off from that. I'm, I'm I'm no political scientist, although I do have a political science degree. Politics works slow, which basically when we talk about politics, we're talking about society. Society works slow, so you know there. You know we're 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 legalizing now. We got a couple jurisdictions that have now decriminalized. You know some drugs. So do I think you know? and, And there's a lot of education and a lot of science is needed. A lot is needed, and 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 so. I don't think we're any, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. I appreciate that. I know what you're talking about. It's kind of like I do a lot of work in the cannabis field. And so I understand that cannabis is very healing. You know, you get the right terpenes and this, that and the other. And you know, you could have a very healing, um, um, specific strain, all that sort of good stuff. So I, I, and I get that and I appreciate that, but I think mainstream society is far off from having classes on, on, on that, but it's happening. It's happening. I don't know, Gary, I think your book speaks to this sort of thing too, right?
4: Yeah. A, a little, lo- a little bit. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Sonia. I, I think we're well, well, well away from those moments that we dream of. Um, the most important thing again, is just to have this conversation break out of these echo chambers and start having it with people who, aren't aware or, or are, and are opposed because you have to start winning them over.
5: But Gary, don't you think with, let's say the an FDA approval of the psilocybin type drug? I mean, I think that would be a huge watershed moment. I mean, there's so many, these SSRIs and stuff are so devastating to, to your body. If there's something that actually works at, at least better, I, I don't
4: know. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. FDA approval would would speed the conversation along. I'm talking, you know, before that happens, you you could be encouraging these conversations right now. I mean, sure. There's tons of things that science hasn't revealed yet that that will eventually be studied and, and we'll find out more about it and find these wonderful things. I'll, I'll give you just one tepid little example. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I think it was just before the pandemic hit, um, Beckley foundation had published an article. They did this one-off just tiny little study. It didn't amount to much. They didn't put much into it, but what they found was that LSD seemed to be a pet, a better pain modulator than opioids. And what they did was an experiment with a like an ice bath, and they gave people low doses, and they checked their tolerance to extreme cold with and without and determined, gee whiz, on LSD, they were way more tolerant of of the pain of the ice bath. So now imagine had we not shut down all this research 50 years ago, and it had been discovered, hey, gee whiz, it turns out LSD or some iteration of it in the right dose actually better than opioids. Now, imagine, had we known that, we might have avoided the entire opioid epidemic. So this is why these conversations need to take place. It may be uncomfortable for people, but it will shake us out of this complacent, willful ignorance and and open up a broader, greater truth for whatever end that might take you to. So the, to to tie
3: Gary's observation about the, broad, the need for broader conversation in larger outlets and to also respond to Andrew's question about, so when is this going to be? Uh, Rick Doblin recently gave an interview to GQ where he was asked about the future of psychedelics in mainstream society and his projection for what Andrew envisions, where we would be in such a society where if you wanted to cure somebody with an opiate problem by bringing them to the psychedelic world was 50 years. And he was describing that the work that's being done now in the 2020s towards rescheduling, changing the law, Was going to yield rescheduling in this decade, which was going to yield the advancement of more clinics and more progress in the next decade, where over the span of about 40 years, he was envisioning we'll get to the point where we are actually saying, Hey, you've got a problem with fentanyl. Maybe we can teach you how to grow mushrooms. So the conversation, the conversation is being thought about in these kinds of terms, but you know, certainly there's, there's a long distance to go. I yeah. could see
1: that. That makes sense to me. That's what I was saying about political science. Po- po- Poli-sci tells you society works slow. You can't, you know, you can't just. So 40, 40 50 years in, in terms of mainstream, I could see that. Yeah.
4: Yeah, that makes sense to me too. And, and, but from a slightly different perspective, because I look upon this as the imbuing into our culture, some new cultural norms that don't currently exist. So you're going to take this first generation that's at the front of this wave that's the generation that's going to be re-educated. Then that second generation that Rick Doblin's talking about, those are the children of the generation you've just re-educated, and you're counting on them to establish the new cultural norm. Is it achievable? Heck, yeah, it is. I'm optimistic about it. And I'm only 52. I might live long enough to see it. So that's kind of interesting, too. Well, and, that,
3: and, the, and the, I'm sorry, go ahead, Sonia.
1: No, I was laughing uh,
3: and and so to bring it to bring it all full circle and one of the cultural norms that lawyers will tell you should be a norm is that everybody should have their own personal lawyer and so there's uh, two two parts of this question with regard to psychedelic people and finding a lawyer. The first part is you are a therapist, you are a grower, you are doing something that you just preventatively want to have somebody on tap should things go wrong. What are the things you should be thinking about for how to get somebody on tap should things go wrong?
4: Sam, you're the concierge for this. (laughs) You'll understand why. I'm telling you, Sam is like so white glove with the clients. This is exactly a perfect question for him.
5: I I really believe people need to... Attorneys, uh, the way you should approach like a a potential spouse is you need to get along with them. Yeah, they have to be able to speak to you and work with you just in in any topic. Um, There's so many areas where this affects... I mean, when people come to my office for one problem, I always ask them about a couple other things that I just see repeatedly in people's lives. Um, to try to just protect them and just you know make sure that they're growing their business. Typically, it's a business or, or financial issue. But I really think you, you have to be able to freely communicate with this person and not feel like it's some sort of authority figure that you're afraid to share what's actually going on. And so that's what I think is the basis of it. It's really just trust. And that's going to be different for people. I've told potential clients who it's like, I could help you, but I'm not really the right person for you. And I believe, and I've learned long ago, if I'm not the right person for this particular matter or this client, get them to somebody who is. And it's never steered wrong. So it's that simple. And then somebody who actually knows what they're doing helps. <laughs> or that will tell you when they don't.
4: Yeah, you, you, you have an absolute right as a consumer of legal services to expect open, honest, candid communication with your attorney or prospective attorney. Uh, if you're not getting that, get up, walk out of their office, don't go back. Seriously, there are enough lawyers out there. You can find the one that is the right fit for you. Um, also true, you know, there are lawyers out there who will be like, yeah, 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 just give me a big fat deposit and I'm your lawyer for life. And, you know, at 2 a.m. you can call me and maybe you can, maybe you can't. There are some lawyers out there who really will let you call them at 2 a.m. But if that's what you need and that's what you want, you need to ask and and expect an honest answer.
3: So that's the non-crisis. And then what do you do when you've got a crisis and you're looking and you're looking for a lawyer? Is it is it as simple as you go to your state bar or what, what advice do you have for people to, to, to find that person that's going to help them out when they're, they're really in a pinch?
4: How bad is the ask
1: friends. I say, I say, ask friends first and foremost, um, ask around, ask friends, ask friends of friends, ask, you know, um, you know, if that that is if you're comfortable in asking friends, Hey, you know, a criminal defense attorney. Um, but yeah, you can look at your state bar. Arizona has a state bar uh, search website where I think you could search by practice areas. Um, go get on the Google and, you know, look up attorney in your area. Then m- maybe, you know, if it's a psych a specific psychedelic, you know, type that in as well, you know, in a Google search and see what websites come up. You could, you know, find different attorneys that's on their websites, talk about their experience with their use. Arizona has a cannabis bar association, um, and and has a list of all the attorneys who deal with uh, cannabis issues. A lot of the attorneys who deal with cannabis issues um, also, if they do criminal defense deal with the psychedelic issues, Gary and a few others deal with psychedelic on on a more civil level, if you will. But in terms of an emergency, you're looking at calling a criminal defense attorney, ask around, see what friends, if not get on the Google, get on Yelp, look, you know, look at reviews. So if a friend or family member doesn't know the best you could do is uh look for an attorney who has reviews that uh you could check out and uh one of the things you're going to ask an attorney is what the retainer is first and foremost what is your retainer what is your retainer and what is your hourly i mean that's b- bottom line could you could you even afford to hire that attorney some attorneys have retainers in terms of criminal depending on the charge as low as 2000 um other attorneys have retainers as high as 100,000 you know, depending on the criminal case and, and firm. So, (laughs) I mean, you just don't know. So Colin, those are the questions you want to ask. I like to think of attorneys are kind
5: of like dentists. You know, you don't want, you don't want to go to see the dentist and you also don't want to see an attorney and it's about as much fun. But if you go to the dentist before the problem, you're a lot better off if you have a resource i mean i mean i know gary and i we basically refer out a lot of the stuff i mean there's some stuff we do and then there's people like we'll say go to sonia she's a good person so you want to build that relationship before just like you have a dentist before you have a root canal hopefully um you know so you have somebody that's trusted that knows you before the crisis because i deal with crisis It's not fun with a crisis. You may not have a chance to look at the reviews. I mean, you're somebody died or something really bad. You don't have a chance to negotiate retainers. You're kind of stuck (laughs) with whoever picks up the phone. It's not a good place to be. It's much better if you have a trusted advisor to talk to and guide you there um, through friends or or another attorney. But you know, hopefully you don't need us. But uh, you know, that's what we're here for is resources.
4: Yeah. And, and remember also lawyers are licensed to practice law, all law, all of it. So with my bar license, if I want to be a securities lawyer on Monday and, and, you know, dabble in the world of stocks and bonds, I can do that. And on Tuesday, if I feel like being a divorce lawyer, sure, I'll take your divorce case on Wednesday. If I feel like, ah, it's criminal day. Sure. I can do that. Am I going to be good at any of those things? hell no. So it's not enough just to buy a lawyer's time, interview, vet, research. There are lawyers who specialize. There are lawyers who focus their practice in particular niches and areas. If you have a particular need, you want to find that particular lawyer. Like Sonia was saying, uh, she and I are both members of the Cannabis Bar Association. We've got a roster of members that's, oh God, 40, 50 lawyers deep. Some of them just do real estate stuff. And if you've got a cannabis issue that's just real estate, that's who we're going to send you to because that's who you need. We're not going to send you to the divorce guy. What's he going to do with your real estate, right? So you've got to know who you're dealing with. And and if you're, if you're completely without the luxury of time, which even in the biggest crunch, you can always find 24 hours to look somebody up.
3: Thank you. That's excellent. Excellent feedback and advice. And Lorenzo, I saw that you had something. So why don't you take us out?
2: Well, well, before Gary said that uh, I had something to say, and now I can just say, what he said <laughs> because i i wanted to to point out and, and uh, put a an exclamation point on what sam was saying like if you go to a dentist you want to just get your teeth clean you need an extraction a cavity you want braces you know what kind of dentist are are you really looking for and and like you said gary lawyers are are the same way you know while you can practice all these things what are you really good at what what are your firms good at and and you know About a half hour ago, I was I was looking at the three of you and and thinking, wow, you know, it's been a long time since I practiced law, even though I'm still licensed, uh, mainly because in Texas, after you're 70, you're you're a permanent member of the state bar, you just have to certify you're alive once a year. So so I'm still a licensed attorney. And I was looking at three of you and I thought, well. Who would I hire? Well, you know, I, my practice was mainly business, real estate law and business. So Sam and I, you know, we're, we, we understand each other. And if I had a business case, I, I'd hire Sam in a, in a heartbeat. But if I wanted to go to Congress and lobby people, Gary, you'd be the man. I, I, I would hire you to be a spokesman. But if I had a, legal problem a criminal problem or my one of my grandchildren did Sonia it, and it's not because of your experience it's the fire in your eyes when you were speaking I saw wow if she took my case nobody'd have a chance you know that uh, and and that goes right back to what Sam was saying you've got to have a rapport with your lawyer you know you, you and and it's, it's you, you won't hurt a lawyer's feeling if you say you know I just don't feel right. You're not the right one. You, you got to be able, and that's one of the things I learned practicing law and in, in business. You got to know when to walk away from a deal, and and uh, the same thing is when you're hiring a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. You know, if you don't feel good about them, uh, you know, you've got to work with them for a long time. You're going to, you know, turn a big part of your life over to them. So feel good about them. Uh, and and before we close, here, Gary, uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast. And I'll tell you why I'd like to know something about it is because. My friend Myron Stoleroff, when he was alive and in his eighties, even when he'd sit down in an airplane next to somebody, one of the first things he'd say when he starting talking to people, he'd say, "Well, what do you think about LSD?" And and I think your podcast might be the the opener. You know, what do you think about the legalization? Did you hear this podcast? Something like that. So tell us a little bit about your podcast, if you will. Yeah,
4: sure. I'm ha- I'm happy to, and thank you. And, and by the way, you're also right about never hurting a lawyer's feelings. If you know, for whatever reason, it's not going to work out because here's the truth. We don't have any feelings. <laughs> After 30 years of doing this, I'm just a big emotional callous. Um, yeah. So the podcast is really just where the book um, leaves off. So the story is basically this. A year and a half ago, I published this book and I had this grandiose idea that, you know, I'm going to go jump on the international psychedelics lecture circuit and talk about the book and promote it and what I do. Uh, and then the pandemic set in and, you know, nobody was going anywhere. And I was stuck at home uh, working from the home office here because I also wasn't going to the office, uh, but I was still working. So I spent part of pandemic learning how to do video editing and audio editing and I built this whole studio here at the house so the the podcast picks up where the book leaves off and it's just the ongoing exploration from a lawyer's perspective and I bring that skill set to the show looking at all the different facets of psychedelics and and from my perspective there's no topic off limits on the show cuz you know you grab this gem I call psychedelics and every time you turn that gem around you look at a new facet there's something wonderful there. So it could be history, archaeology, anthropology, law, uh, you name it. There's some psychedelic connection and I haven't found the bottom of the barrel yet. So uh, I have an ongoing show, I don't get to it as often as I'd like to, because my day job gets in the way, but I try to get at least one episode up a month. And most of it is interviews where I'll bring in professionals from the real working world who are actually doing this so that you A, get the most recent information and B, can see that there are actual jobs and careers and way to earn a living doing this while elevating the topic. Uh, and then uh, other sh- episodes I do are just me uh, sharing the research I find. Like I, recently I did, uh, I think, three book reviews. I, I rarely get a chance to pleasure read. So I, I, I did find some time and I read three psychedelic books that were on point to what I do. And so I did a review on those. And, and I'll keep doing this in, until somebody stops me.
2: So uh for the for for the attorneys here tonight you're you're uh, <laughs> I see Gary is is wearing a shirt that says uh, uh <laughs> I'm billing you for for this so uh, <laughs> I I think we better cut this off right now because <laughs> I I can't afford much more of this but listen like I say every week listen everybody uh until next time keep the old faith and stay high <laughs> I know I will And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.